undocumented farm workers, these are the people I think deserve a union the most because they're the people most subject to exploitation. Yeah. Um, they do jobs that are incredibly difficult. And um, what they're asking for is not crazy. They're asking to not be subject to threats and intimidation. People who just very puzzlingly, we as a society are relying upon for our food, mm -hmm. yet we don't want to look out for them. We don't want to guarantee them any sense yeah. of stability and permanence. And so it really is a travesty. Welcome to The Lost Debate, a show for political eclectics. I'm Robbie Gupta. And I'm Ricky Schlott. Well, Ricky, we're back in the studio after a little hiatus. Mm -hmm. um, you were how does it feel? at a sporting event, I, yeah. I hear. <laughs> I was at the Bills game. Bills look great. The SoFi Stadium is incredible. LA, I would have to say, I, I, I like to. I think we both like to make fun of LA. I don't know if you've noticed this. I do think that the homeless issue is getting better there, at least on the west do side. Do you? Yeah. And I think huh. there's been a lot of there's been a big push locally, and I've definitely yeah. noticed it. Yeah. I was I was driving I guess westward, and there's like this huge stretch of highway where there are literally just trailers and and school buses and like people who like those are just homes for them. That's something that is just cyclically still there. I don't know how they're going to move it. Like I don't I like where did you see the improvement? I just saw it in Venice and in Santa Monica. Okay. Just like and I asked people about it and and we I think at some point we have to revisit our homeless segment that we did a long time ago that people are saying that whatever money has been invested locally which apparently yeah. is a ton uh, has actually been bearing fruit combined with, I think, some pretty aggressive pushes by law enforcement to sort of clear encampments. Mm -hmm. And so actually, this is a reminder that we should probably revisit that story at some point. Yeah, and, definitely. You know, because right now I think I'm just arguing with like anecdata about yeah. like, what I saw on the streets. No, it's fair though. That's that's the way those conversations start. We'll come back to that at some point. Yeah, we are not touching homelessness today on the show, but we are going to talk about single women uh, without children, how they're making more than their male counterparts. We're going to dive into that data. We're also going to talk about a beef between President Biden and Governor Gavin Newsom over farm workers and their right to organize. We're going to talk about China and the U.S. economy, but let's start in Florida with the latest out of Mar-a-Lago. Ricky, there's been a lot of developments since we've touched the story last. It seems like every day something new is happening. And just to catch our audience up since the last time we talked about this, over 300 classified documents have now been seized from Mar-a-Lago. Uh, the Washington Post reported that one of those documents detailed a foreign government's uh, military and nuclear defenses. Trump's team uh, requested a special master to review the materials that was granted by federal judge Eileen Cannon. Uh, this means that the Justice Department has been ordered to stop reviewing and using the seized materials for investigative purposes. The DOJ has appealed that decision and Trump's lawyers and the DOJ have been going back and forth with candidates over who the special master could be. And it seems like they've agreed on one of Trump's lawyers suggestions, which is a, a federal judge uh, out of Brooklyn here in New York. And so lots going on, Ricky. What stands out to you? Well, one thing that stands out to me as a non-legal person is what exactly a special master is in the first place. So can you clear that up for people like me that aren't quite sure what that term means? Yeah, I, these are often uh, either former judges or former prosecutors that are appointed in cases that are really complicated and usually involve some question of privilege. So a common example is if a law firm itself is subject to litigation, not participating mm -hmm. in litigation as lawyers, but they themselves are being sued. And the reason why special masters in those cases are pretty common is because a law firm has attorney-client privilege. But if they're being sued, sometimes 
it's complicated to figure out all right, what documents do they have to turn over since theoretically they can claim everything they have mm -hmm. is privileged, but obviously that wouldn't be tenable in a case. In this case, obviously, the executive privilege is what they're focused on here. Uh, and Trump is also citing attorney-client privilege, but based on what we know about the documents seized, that is going to be much less pertinent to this than you know his claim that anything he did as president should be his property. Mm -hmm. And so having that special master step in here um, would cause the Justice Department to pause their investigation, at least into probing further into those documents, even though they can still do interviews as they are and evaluate threats more broadly. But I saw a bunch of competing different claims here on how long that would delay this, if it's weeks, if it could be up to years. I saw one headline. Mm -hmm. What Do we have a sense of where that's going to go? Yeah, different people are making different claims. You know, Barr, uh, former attorney general, has been pretty hard on Trump on this. Uh, he mm -hmm. seems to suggest that this may delay it a bit, but isn't really going to hinder the, the DOJ's investigation in the yeah. long run. He called it a red uh, herring recently. Right. Yeah. He's been pretty critical, pretty forceful. Vox seems to suggest this could take years. I think that might be one of the headlines you're talking about. I think if you just think about depends on how you read motive here in terms of the judges involved. You got Cannon, who is a Trump appointee, has been getting a lot of criticism for her thin record. Uh, and, you know, her, the fact mm -hmm. that she hasn't, you know, prior to being nominated really wasn't a very public figure yeah. and didn't have judicial experience. Also worth noting, though, that 12 Democrats voted for her. Mm -hmm. But obviously, there's been a lot of criticism of her and the fact that she was pretty forthcoming about her intent yeah. to appoint a special master. She said so publicly even before, before the hearings. hearings. Yeah. yeah. So people have been critical of her. So I think if, if you b believe that she is motivated to help Trump, as many people on the left and maybe even Barr seems to suggest, then she could do a lot to slow this down deliberately. There's also the fact that it, it, this appeal goes to a judicial circuit that is the majority of judges have been appointed by Trump. So if you think that they're going to drag their feet deliberately, then that would you know last at least a year. Then it could go to the Supreme Court, which could take a year, if not years, to uh, rule on that if there was an adverse ruling against the Department of Justice there. So you can imagine a scenario that the special master could stretch out for years, up the appeal of it. So the DOJ... You know, I think in responding quickly and saying, hey, one of the, the Trump suggestions is adequate, it could be that the DOJ is just like, look, our, our best path here is to try mm -hmm. to cooperate with the special master, get the documents reviewed. And um, as you alluded to, the investigation still can go on. They're still interviewing witnesses. They, at a certain point, if there is an indictment, it's going to be really hard for the this federal judge to stop the DOJ from using these documents uh, to prosecute either Trump or anybody else involved here. And so with the controversy swirling around this judge and her um, kind of closeness to more conservatives than the other way around, she Trump had nothing to do as far as we know of her being assigned to this case, though, right? Like this is... Because I feel like there's kind of yeah. some level of like conspiratorial buzz around that. But this seems to have been just like the way that things panned out. Yeah, I would say that forum shopping in general is something that's very common in you know litigation, which is a term like if you're familiar with your childhood, if you have one parent who's more sympathetic to your request to stay out late or to let you go to the mall or to buy the thing that you want, that's forum shopping, right? You go to the parent that's gonna give you what you want. This is something mm -hmm. that's very common in law, which is why if you sign a contract, often you look at if you read the fine print it says which jurisdiction governs a dispute between you and either your employer or apple or whatever and so that's because there are places certain places that are favorable often if you're looking at a contract for example uh like for with some corporation they're going to say 
you know, Delaware is going to be the jurisdiction for this dispute. So in this case, this was filed in West Palm Beach, where it just was randomly assigned to this judge. So I think like the conspiracy theorists, I think have to settle down on that. There is a separate case going on with the former uh, FBI agent, Peter Strzok, where a judge uh, who ruled in that case seemed to suggest that the Trump team was motivated to get this case, th- that particular case, in front of Cannon. But that's yeah. a different case. But that would at least suggest that Trump's team seems to think that Cannon would rule in their favor. Now, if I were on the Trump's team, they could just say, look, that's a Republican judge. If I can guarantee a conservative judge, we're going to go for the conservative judge. That's just what a lawyer should do. All this to say is that I don't think we have an impartial (laughs) judiciary in this country. Mm -hmm. I don't think that's specific to this case. Um, It is interesting, though, that this is a privilege claim, and and we're going to link in our show notes to two documents that I think are are really exhaustive on this question of what executive privilege is. Uh, One is a a piece by Andrew McCarthy in the National Review, and the other is a Vox piece. I would would suggest that people start with the Andrew McCarthy piece because it really goes into detail what executive privilege is and what it is not and and how it's evolved over history. And I think in short, what McCarthy is saying, which Vox also says, is that executive privilege is the privilege of the branch, not a personal privilege, Mm -hmm. and that there's great deference given to the sitting executive, in this case is Biden, to invoke the privilege or not, and that invoking it to avoid criminal liability, especially when you are not in office, is highly suspect. And that in many of the post-Nixon, post-Watergate cases are pretty clear on this. So he seems to be suggesting this, and this is the National Review, right? We're not mm-hmm. talking about like the New York yeah. Times or you know um, the Nation or something. Like yeah. this is this is a pretty conservative publication. Uh, Bill Barr seems to suggest this. Yeah. It's hard to find a lot of lawyers who think that Trump's claim of executive privilege is going to hold here. Because then, if you start to think about it, it's like, well, think about the hypothetical situation where he could hold on to documents like nuclear documents about our allies or in the case of intelligence on foreign leaders Macron's like Macron's sex life apparently yeah. <laughs> right yeah I don't know what that's about. Yeah. you're alluding to rolling stone this i wouldn't say this was the the, the most well sourced reporting but they they had reporting suggesting that people in Trump's orbit are saying that he's bragging about things he knows about mm-hmm. Macron. And this is relevant because one of the documents that were seized allegedly had to do with uh, Macron's background. Yeah, This is all you know, obviously inappropriate behavior, probably illegal behavior. And that gets to this, like what the Justice Department could still do. They can interview those people in Trump's orbit. And, yeah. and if he is using any of the documents that he has, God forbid the nuclear documents, then, then we're starting to talk about an indictment, whether or not they have access to these mm-hmm. uh, documents anymore. The minute that they issue that indictment, they're going to be able to use those documents probably. Well, we'll definitely continue to keep everyone updated on the further revelations. I'm sure will be coming down the line. But in the interim, we wanted to react to a Bloomberg article that's gotten a lot of attention about single women and women foregoing children and their accumulation of wealth as a result of those choices. Um, and the the major data here that I think really captured the headline was that single men without children are worth on average uh, $57,000 in terms of their personal wealth, whereas single women without children are worth $65,000. So they're doing better than not only uh, single women with children and uh, single men with children, but also single men without children, too. So they seem to be, at least in this demographic, by far outpacing their counterparts. And so it's definitely a hit a cultural, ner- cultural nerve. Yeah. Uh, but what do you make of that? Well, 
before we get to the nerve that's hit here, because yeah. I do think that's fascinating, uh, what's driving this? Well, so there's not a lot of clear explanations for why single women without kids would be outpacing single men. But my sense, I mean, it seems kind of clear why single women without children would be doing better than single moms. That's a really tough situation to be in. And you can't accumulate wealth when you have children to feed, of course. My, I mean, my take here is that I think there's a certain personality type that's probably more geared towards prioritizing career, prioritizing that over having kids. And they probably just accumulate more wealth as a result of that more so than like I think I think there's a lot of women make a deliberate choice that they'd rather have a career than be have to be kind of more down by a family and so this could be like the the fiscal result yeah and so the numbers are staggering when you compare uh single moms for example yeah seven thousand dollars in wealth versus sixty five thousand and so it's tremendous and i think that this also gets to like data that's pretty clear that there is a gender wage gap and there's this big debate going on about why that might be the case and so like there's a couple explanations here i'm curious to see which of these you find most Convincing, and obviously it could be many of these, right? One mm-hmm. could be discrimination. One could be just choice of careers that may differ by gender. Um, there's the Jordan Peterson argument about agreeableness. Uh, and I saw some a very contentious debate he had on, I think it was a British television show where he claimed that women are more agreeable, therefore like they're less good managers or something. And no, I don't think that's the, what he claimed at all. No, no, yeah, he no. did. No, is it the Kathy go. Newman interview? Yeah. No, it's where he says that women have tend to be more agreeable in general because of that, like executive roles tend to choose for people who are more disagreeable. This is like a psychological trait that's measurable. And it's just true that there's a correlation that women tend to be more agreeable than men. And what he said How is that to her, different than what I just said? You just said that it makes them bad managers. Nobody said, he never said that it makes women bad managers. That would be a gross generalization. What What's different between what I said and you just said, the manager There's, thing? Because he was saying that in he response was saying to her that, claim he that was it was discrimination. That, he was saying that women tend to have a more agreeable personality trait that makes them less likely to potentially ask for raises, I think was what he was specifically saying there. No. But he never, okay, he never said that women are bad managers. I I would like to see so that So he, here's, yeah, I just listened to it. So I'll would, give you my best. Okay. And we'll, we'll probably play it, I think, okay. for our audience so they can, I, they can listen to this. There's a personality trait known as agreeableness. Agreeable people are compassionate and polite. And agreeable people get paid less than, dis, than less agreeable people for the same job. Women are more agreeable than men. Again, a vast generalization. Some it's women not are not more agreeable than yes, men. Yes, that's true. But that's right. And some women get paid more than men. So you were saying that by and large, women are too agreeable to get the pay rises they I'm, deserve. No, I'm saying that that's one component of a multivariate equation. Absolutely do not here's, believe that he said that women are bad managers. Here, here, he didn't use those words, but this is why I interpreted it that way, is because he was reacting to a claim that the host made, which was that this was about gender discrimination. And he said, he then brought up a claim that he's made many times, which is this agreeableness thing. That's the sort of people who run things. Those are the people who run things. Well, they're often also disagreeable too, because you want to you want to manage people? Really? They're not going to like you. You know, and it's not an easy thing to not be liked. And actually, if you're an agreeable person, and women are more agreeable than men, it's quite painful to be disliked. But if you're in a managerial and executive position, the probability that people are going to like you is quite low. Which I think you and I agree that that's his claim, is that women, he's making a claim that women are more agreeable on average, on average than men. 
And that explains why they're being selected or not being selected for executive roles. And that is what- It's a causal thread. I yeah. don't, he never says that's the only- Yeah, but I think he was claiming in that interview that it was more of, it was more of a driver of the inequality than gender discrimination was. And well, he was contrasting it to gender discrimination. So if you take gender discrimination out of the conversation as to why women and their agreeableness would be relevant to them being managers, you'd be like, well, He's saying that the agreeableness makes them worse managers in the eyes of the people selecting them. I know? don't remember the managers being the term that was like discussed there. I think it was just about like getting raises and advancing to executive levels. Yeah, well, you use the term executive. I use the term managers. I kind of view them as the same. But well, if you look at there, like yeah. there's a ton of data that comes. Um, this study out of Denmark shows that women who forego kids have the same kind of career trajectory in terms of their income. Like it's there's a slight difference, but it's not a major difference between men and women and their earning potential. But when women have kids, their earning potential goes down considerably. But that's if you I mean, there's there's like a very good argument to be made that the fact that women biologically have kids, that's a that's an increased pressure on them. And that is like causing a, a wealth gap mm -hmm. and an income gap versus if it was just discrimination on the basis of their gender period, you wouldn't expect to see that men and women or women who don't have kids are achieving roughly at the same level as men. And I, you know, I struggle with the, the sense that 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 if there is a lowered income after women have children, maybe because they want to work part-time as a lot of women do, or maybe because that's just a choice that they made to like balance their career. I don't see that as necessarily 100% discriminatory. Yeah, and I actually think that gets to the Peterson debate because I actually think in a weird way, they were both wrong potentially in that debate, which was, you know, one claim was that it was gender discrimination driving the, the differences in wage. And Peterson was, I think, hanging his hat too much on this agreeableness piece. And what you're saying is, well, there's a penalty for child rearing, and that might be- I think there's child rearing, and I think there's also career choice. And yeah, that and might be separate from discrimination. Now, there there could be discrimination wrapped up in the child rearing conversation, of course. There could be. Right, because it could it be It depends like, on the degree to which it's a choice, but- Right, like I could be, for example, as a manager, I could see, oh, well, I'm trying to make a decision on this project coming up between two people, and I, have re I just think there's a chance that you might have a baby in the next year and managers could be you know either consciously or subconsciously taking that into account and then there could be the actual choices of the employees right well then and but the women who don't have kids continue to roughly achieve parity with their male counterparts so yeah. I, I mean it doesn't really pan out that men or that managers are discriminating against women on the basis of that potential well i think what's interesting about this data I, I, I agree with you in part, but I do think when you look at the data from the US, the roughly does a lot of work here because it's still not parity. And that mm -hmm. to me says, well, something else could be going on here. But I also think that Denmark is interesting because it is a country that is that really takes care of people yep. who have kids. So it gives the people a year off. biggest possible social safety right. net. Yeah, a year off for having, when you have a kid and highly subsidized childcare and all that. So it almost, it corrects for some of the things that are different about the United States where we're not as good at taking care of people. And so you don't see as great of data in the US, but it's closer than people would would think. Because I think so many people say, well, if we solved the childcare issue, if we gave people more leave, then we'd have more equality. And what I think is really confusing about this data is that it doesn't lead to equality in, in Denmark. Yeah, because I think that equal outcomes when you have a gender difference and like the experience of parenthood that's clearly very different 
is maybe not something that you can contrive in a society no matter how much you you give women to make them be able to work like men some women just want to balance motherhood and that part of their life in a more holistic way with part-time work and i think that's that's something that more and more women are choosing to do as like a like a middle path right. and i think that this this data goes to show that you know, social engineering is not going to create women who just want to work like men and have kids and hire nannies. Well, I think let's get to the back to this this Bloomberg report, right? Because yeah. it interviews these women, and people had reactions to some of the things they said. So um, we start with I think the main focus of this story, who's a forty three year old who owns her West Village apartment. She just closed on a Jersey Shore place. She took 10 trips in the past 12 months, uh, and she works as a representative or a maker of medical devices. Mm -hmm. And she seems to be doing really well. She froze her eggs and isn't sure whether she's going to have kids, but she says certain things that I think her and, and one of the other subjects of the story say certain things that I think you know betray a certain kind of worldview. She says, I love children, and I love all my friends' children, but I don't know if I would love my life with children. <laughs> so there's a, there's a, a defense of a lifestyle here. Um, what do you make of their claims here? I or mean, at least their I, defense of their I have no, I have nothing to say about her personal life choices at all, period. I think that there are probably a group of women, though, who are similar to her in terms of their profile, where they're in their th late 30s or early 40s, and they have frozen eggs, and they've done the career thing, and they might not want to be the Bloomberg headliner with their photo plastered on the front. I think that they're, like, I, I personally know a lot of people who got to that point in their life, and they said, oh, I really wish that I had prioritized having a family and children, and it becomes way less practical as time goes on as a woman, there's a biological ceiling that they hit. There've only been so many generations of women who've come up in the post-birth control age where they have like autonomy over their body and how they want to plan having families and children. And there was, I think, in my opinion, things went a little far in some aspects of like the Sex and the City kind of extreme of, of <laughs> you don't need anything. Well, like the creator of Sex and the City is now 60 and she says now she regrets um, like putting off not having kids and living that like. Yeah, but that's like taking a step it's back. Her, it's her that. life and it's her decision. But like, I think there's generations of women who are struggling, like a younger generation coming up, myself included, who struggle with the realities of like, okay, there's, like, I don't want to throw out the baby with the bathwater of everything about. I think there's like a legitimate question that a lot of women have to have. And you need to be more. There are more pressures. On yeah, but you these are individual decisions, obviously. And, and I think like in Jordan Peterson, who I think we're probably giving too much credit as an expert on women's issues. But he he's you know, a psychologist. I would I would say. Well, he, how do you have any more expertise? I don't. But I think what I'm going to do is like. I think what we're looking to here are actually these women and their own lived experience, right? And I mm -hmm. think like he's painting a picture, a caricature in his statements where he's like, you know, you, like that basically the only motivation is the career's motivation, right? And mm. and to me, and he, that's what he's emphasizing. Yeah, he's telling, then, he's talking about what like 17, 18 year old, like teenage girls are being told today. Which yeah, but then I'm talking this, to a woman with the lived experience of actually grappling with those exact issues though and those competing priorities and narratives like you can say that it's not 
accurate and we're talking about the women with the lived but, experience but like yeah. there is a lived experience of people who are struggling to just be moderate yeah. and make sure that they balance their life priorities but i don't he he emphasizes the career as if that's the only motivation here but when i read these statements like in this bloomberg article she's talking about going on vacation she's talking about getting her second house in uh, the jersey shore and all that and you don't hear that like in, in all the jordan and i've watched God, like way too many Jordan Peterson videos of the last 24 hours, he is only focusing on the career aspects of this. He's not talking about other aspects of life that are fulfilling. And to me, as somebody who is a, a non-married guy with no kids, it's not just about the career. It's about the fact that I can go surfing in Costa Rica and I don't have to answer to anybody. It means that I can write on a Saturday and that's my hobby. I can play tennis with my friends. I can, you know, I, I have a certain amount of freedom. And I don't think like for all the expertise that he has, like it doesn't show up enough. It literally did not show up at all in any of the clips I was watching. I'm sure he's mentioned it in various places, but it's not what he's emphasizing. But then when I hear from women like this, I'm not hearing them saying, hey, I, w I need to be in the boardroom like on a Sunday night, you know, slaving away for my law firm. They're saying, I want to like go where I want to go. I want to hang out with my friends. Like what I found really awesome, I, these people sound great. They all vacation together. They do a lot of the shit that I do, right? So like I might not be an expert on women's issues, but I'm an expert on going to fun places and doing cool shit. And that is a justification for this lifestyle as much as anything careerist. You know? Yeah, well, I think that the, I'll close this out with my main contention here is that I think as a woman who, prioritizes that stuff and wants to do that same stuff. Theoretically, there is an additional pressure that you don't feel in the same way with just having to get things in order earlier for a very clear biological reason. And I I think the conversation, of course, things get a little too ad hominem and people are upset about this woman and her right. frozen eggs, which really shouldn't be any of our business, but she did tell right. Bloomberg. But I think the bottom line here is just there should be a conversation and Jordan Peterson might be inspiring it. Other people might for young women to just say, you need to be a little more mindful of your life timeline in a way that a man might not. You could decide in 10 years you want to have kids yeah. like it's just it's just a reality. I'm my dad was 63 when I was born. There's a difference in how yeah. men and women need to plan things out. And it, I don't think there's anything wrong with empowering young women in their teens and their 20s to just say, hey, if you want to have a child and that's part of your life plan, just be mindful of it. Not yep. so that you don't so that you're not stressed out with frozen eggs and feeling like you screwed up. Yeah. And just empowering women to think about that holistically and accept that reality and just live their lives as they choose as a result depending on where their priorities lie, I think that's the bottom line for me. Yeah, I'm with you. I just think it's a, it's a matter of what we emphasize. And I have a homework assignment for our audience as we close out. Go listen to that clip, the agreeableness clip. We'll give you more than enough Jordan Peterson clips than you need. And then read all the other stuff that we cite in our show notes. The and then Princeton count how study. many times Kathy Newman says, so you're saying. I'm and not saying completely she, I don't mischaracterize. Don't no, I, I know. I'm just her. saying. Uh, that's a great drinking game on that but clip. Read so that. you're saying. Listen, watch those videos, then read these studies from the Princeton professor, listen to the interviews from Bloomberg, and then ask yourself whether Jordan Peterson, psychologist, is really nuanced in his way that he's looking at this or even bring anything really that helpful to the table. I would answer no, but let us know what you find out out there. Agree right. to disagree on that one. All right. Well, we have a little drama coming out of California right now. Um, maybe some 2024 tensions between uh, Gavin Newsom and Joe Biden at the moment. 
that started over a bill that was in California seeking to make it easier for farmhands or farm workers to unionize despite their immigration status to give them some protection so that they don't feel like they might even potentially get deported if they engage in this process. And although Newsom is rumored to be planning to kill the bill, Biden came out on the national stage and made a statement on Labor Day saying that in the state with the largest population of farm workers, the least we owe them is a free and fair chance to organize a union. And so we have some interesting national tension over what seems to be a very local issue here. So what do you make of that, Ravi? Well, I, I, I'm always fascinated by this like parlor game about Gavin Newsom as a potential national candidate. I'm sure you have a lot of opinions it's news about this. to me that that was like even <laughs> yes. really a conversation. All of a sudden, he's like getting tossed out there. Yeah. No. Even people I really respect, like I listen to Scott Galloway and Kara Swisher, and they seem to be a little bit more bullish on him than than I am. I didn't know there was anyone who was bullish on him. I don't. I, I think it depends. And there are certain communities, like for instance, the gay rights community. That I understand why they love Newsom because he came out earlier than a lot of people. Like I would yeah. argue whether like his incentives really like required him to be that courageous in that context yeah but then you look at the way he handled covid the way he's handled the state the recall homelessness issues fiscal issues in the state like i don't view him that credible but but that aside the reason why this is relevant is not just because of labor relations in california and this is a place with you know storied mm -hmm. history chavez dolores huerta like you know it was the first state to recognize the right of farm workers to unionize and you know, they, despite all that, you still have crazy low amounts of uh, farm workers who are unionized today. Is that right? Yeah, there are um, 14 states that guarantee collective bargaining rights, but California, less than 1% of their farm workers are unionized. And it seems crazy. According to their, like the union itself, they think that that's due to immigration concerns. Um, in recent years, it's jumped from 13% undocumented workers to 70%. So this state's economy is like basically being held up by these undocumented workers who also have no power and are completely um, unable to exercise any any voice in in the debates that are going on in their right um in their occupations but california creates a third of or produces a third of vegetables and three quarters of our fruits and nuts so this is an the enormous country you're talking about yeah right? the so country. this is why if you're listening and you're not in california this is important to you is this not just a labor question in california is where your food comes from right? yeah and also these people that like help <laughs> right to make sure that that's actually happening and there doesn't seem to be a very clear path to helping them get citizenship if they so choose and now there's an even mud more muddied path to whether or not they can have um a voice in their union votes i mean there's also a whole separate conversation about mail-in balloting well yeah tell us about and this so, educate us on what's what the actual dispute here is about and then we can get to this hypocrisy well, so we don't know elections. a ton about why newsom is vetoing we can kind of assume but he has um vetoed similar bills in the past but what the agricultural industry is arguing here is that these mail-in ballots over initiatives that the union is um, carrying out is they're difficult to verify. Someone could just show up and like make someone sign it. Um, it's hard to make sure that these votes are counted clearly. And so it's interesting and, to, and to see. be clear right now, like under the current law, you have to show up like in order to vote to unionize, you have to show up to a particular place. And I think it's often within the facilities mm -hmm. that are operated by the companies. And the claim there is like there's you know immigration concerns yada yada yada, uh, and that this this law or the change in law would allow like a union official to go to you and say Ricky you want to unionize sign this thing and I will turn it in for you and that's yeah. partially 
potentially what Gavin Newsom is and the industry have an issue with. Poten- well, that's what the industry has an issue with. And potentially that's what Newsom has an issue with. But it seems like Newsom might just be not wanting to cross this enormous industry. Mm-hmm. A winery group that he co-founded just recently bought a vineyard for $14.5 million. Newsom himself has a net worth of like $20 million, which is part of just the general optics that he's not very much in touch. But right. it seems like that could be one reason that he is lending some credence to the claims of the agricultural companies here. But um, it also, a lot of the concerns about ballots sound kind of similar to some 2020 concerns that those on the right had, although we haven't expressly heard Newsom say that those are his personal right. concerns. But of course, it's also a union vote with their degree of ability to ensure yeah, security versus yeah. an election is different. Yeah. And in an election, there are two parties, right? So like, like in the case of a union, from what I understand, the corporation can't do a lot to coerce that person to sign the equivalent of yeah. their rights away. So there's only one party vying for your signature, whereas in election, it would be two different parties. So like that it has different implications for fraud, but also like you said, like the infrastructure is different for an election. But I, it is puzzling. I would have to say like as, as much as I, I, I believe in mail-in ballots, the, the hypocrisy seems very close. Yeah, here. and I'm curious what your take is on why um, Biden decided that this was his moment to step in and it was a no-brainer for him. Newsom. He has a bust of Chavez in the Oval Office. Apparently, he views himself as pro-labor, mm-hmm. and for him, this is like a he. he I think he views Newsom as kind a of a meddlesome force. I don't think anybody credibly will believe that Newsom would beat Biden in a primary, but. You know, Newsom has kind of been holding himself up as a more aggressive alternative. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that it's that- A little more Newsom- vim and vigor maybe than Biden himself. Yeah, he's younger. <laughs> uh, but I think, I mean, everybody's younger than Biden really, but like <laughs> the, I think what he's doing is not necessarily saying I'm going to run against Biden, but he's trying to show what an alternative could look like and try to add to the uh-huh. pressure for Biden not to run again. As somebody who, you know, has spent a, a lifetime in democratic politics, I'm puzzled as to what lane Newsom would really be in here, especially in a situation where he's trying to, everybody in this, at this stage in a democratic primary, like hypothetical primary tries to be the most left. This yeah. is what makes this even super puzzling to me because the most powerful force in democratic politics is labor. And the idea that Newsom would, would stick his chin out on this, it's kind of confusing to me, which makes me think that there's a chance that he, he budges on this. Like he, he still hasn't uh-huh. made a final decision on this. It, it couldn't I mean, be the that last that time he powerful. vetoed a similar bill, it kind of went under the radar because right. Biden didn't blow it up into a national story. But um, yeah, I think his optics have just been really bad. Like the French laundry situation where he was meeting with some special interest lobbyist, I think. During, clo- During COVID when everyone else had to be, when I was in California lockdown and no one could go anywhere and right. he was getting like a $500 a head meal presumably, I don't know, on whose buck with right. his family photographed there. Meanwhile, he was keeping kids out of school and his kids were going to private school in person at the same time. And he was disenfranchising families who were trying to just like have childcare or like get right. their kids in decent education. I don't, I feel like COVID might've just spoiled all of his chances on the national level, but. Yeah, and I think just to situate this, like I think people often, view us as kind of anti-labor, but I, I think like you can have a nuanced view of labor. And to me that I think there's there's one case for public sector unions and that's where I'm most skeptical because you have a monopoly 
on whatever it is, like the teaching force of a, of a school system, for example. Like, so you could basically hold the system hostage. So I feel very differently about that than say farm workers, mm-hmm. especially undocumented farm workers. These are the people I think deserve a union the most because they're the people most subject to exploitation. Yeah. Um, they do jobs that are incredibly difficult. And I mean, what they're asking for is not crazy. You know, yeah. like the, the, we're talking about the difference of a few thousand dollars in wages often, you know, consistent health care. In this case, they're asking to not be subject to um, threats and intimidation. And there are people who just very puzzlingly, we as a society are relying upon for our food, mm-hmm. yet we don't want to look out for them. We don't want to guarantee them any sense yeah. of stability and permanence. And so it really is a travesty. Yeah. it's. I mean, I feel like I sound very lefty on this one, but it's just there's something really wrong with a an enormous state with an enormous economy and this enormous industry that is 70% dependent on undocumented workers more and more and more so and there doesn't seem to be a good path to actually rectifying that issue right. it's just like i i mean i'm i'm sympathetic to their desire to unionize for that reason yeah and and like my final analysis on this i'm not sure that this card i'm not sure what i think about this particular mechanism of car check but the the rec, those low low rates of unionization of the farm work is is very suspect to me mm-hmm. that tells yeah, me that something's 100%. going wrong here yeah mm-hmm. let's move to uh you know across the world ricky let's talk about china and we're careful about the international stories we do but we felt like some of the trends out of china are worth us taking a look at and in particular there we've all been subject to this narrative you probably your whole life me since you know i was probably in middle school about how china's on the ascendancy and it's just inevitable that china is going to overtake the u.s in terms of their economic power and usually mm-hmm. what we mean by that is that the gdp of china is going to exceed the u.s and it's been this clock that's been ticking yeah and a lot of people felt like we we're going to get there soon and there are new estimates that yeah. seem to suggest that maybe we're wrong. Maybe they're not going to get there soon. Maybe they won't ever exceed us. Well, I think that there's the jury's still out on this. There's some economists who are changing their minds, but there were very good indications that this is a slowly encroaching problem. And I think, you know, the the idea of parity with them and and them overtaking our GDP is one thing, but regardless, they're still a looming economic threat and kind of a shadowy figure in the global stage. But their economy has grown faster than ours every year for four decades. We're worth um, 22.9 trillion versus their 17.7. China's economy is 77% of the US's size in 2021. And just in 2001, it was 13%. Mm. So it's exponential growth. It's concerning, especially considering that they're authoritarian and there are a ton of questions about um, like their ethics and and what they what they would even do as a major world power that's threatening our own. So I think that it is important to say that their their growth trajectory is concerning. But that there are also now starting to show way more cracks, especially around COVID and an aging population. So yeah. do you lend credence to this shift? Well, you look at the numbers, right? They have counted on an average of 10% GDP growth every year since they opened up in the 70s. Mm-hmm. Uh, that has started to slow down. In 2021, it was 8.1%. 8, 8. Estimates are now saying they'd be lucky to reach 3% this year. Yeah, and they were going for 5.5%. So they're still growing, but the, the rate of growth is is decreasing. And, yeah. and you, it's really important to look at why this is the case. And actually, you look behind the numbers, and it's actually pretty staggering the challenges that China is facing right now. They have an aging population. Their population is estimated to shrink by 40% by the end of the century. That's like hard to believe. That's that incredible. It would be 1.4 billion 
800 million obviously the one child policy yeah. was part of this obviously they've they backtracked on that but it's still it, it it's a little bit too late um there's an increasing tendency uh, for china to intervene in the affairs of their companies which mm -hmm. obviously has an effect on their economic growth the most notable example of this was the disappearance of alibaba's ceo jack ma uh, for a few months after he criticized the chinese financial system so basically has a, a chilling effect yeah. on the free market in china there was the zero COVID policy which i know you've talked about a lot mm -hmm. there's the real estate crisis like you know their, their equivalent of enron there's this company called evergrande and there was this I think underreported story, like obviously people were reporting on this, but people just weren't talking about it enough here where there was this scandal that was kind of like China's Enron uh, involving this pre-selling of housing units. Like they mm -hmm. had a real need for housing and these companies were pre-selling housing units and then we were taking that pre-sale money and using them as down payments on other units. And it was basically almost like a Ponzi scheme, uh, mm -hmm. like a shell game. Some of these units were never built and there, it led to a mortgage boycott where a lot of Chinese uh, people were just saying, I'm not gonna pay my mortgage anymore because that's gonna, so you had that, you have uh, plummeting consumer confidence. The, some of these uh, consumer confidence indexes are showing uh, multi-decade lows. You have mm -hmm. the continuing tech war uh, with the United States, which uh, you know Scott Galloway talked about on Bill Maher uh, this week when he talked about TikTok. And then you have high unemployment, and this is the ticking time bomb, I would say the thing I would be most concerned about if I were China, which is high unemployment among young workers. Yeah, Gen Z is totally messed up there. Record high, yeah. which is puzzling, because if you think about the demographic trends I was talking about, you'd think in a shrinking population, it would be the opposite. You'd think that there would be record employment for young people. And when you think about young people out of work, and you think about a regime that is totalitarian, yeah. This is usually a recipe for civil unrest, and that could lead to a cycle of recrimination. This is why probably China gets very sensitive about people like Jack Ma, gets very sensitive about you know Hollywood depicting them in a certain mm -hmm. way and the freedom of information. And you you know, they're paranoid. Of the Uyghur situation, right? Yeah, it's. I think they're on kind of precarious ground here, and seeing the zero COVID policy stuff continue and entire cities just being like authoritatively shut down. They have drones flying around. There's more and more videos that are kind of leaking from within China out into the Western um, like ecosphere. And people are starting to see with their own eyes just how creepy some of these like like we will arrest you if you right. leave your house sort of orders are. So I, I'm sure that that's involved with unmooring young people in those cities who wanted, right. who did start a job or something, and then all of a sudden their whole lives stop and halt, or they were killing dogs and pets in the streets of people who had COVID without any regard for them as individuals. I think there's definitely a recipe for civil unrest or at least a loss of faith in their government or in their economy more generally. And then it's also important to remember that China is has a population like roughly four times that of ours. And so even if they do reach the same GDP, that's like a quarter of the overall wealth per person. And so the quality of life is is very disparate there. Right. And, um, you know, the, the reality on the ground for the typical Chinese person is is very different uh, on the basis of that. Even still, we're only approaching a quarter if they do reach us. Right. And I think it's it's worth pausing here to say, well, then why does this GDP number matter? Mm -hmm. Right. Because we're talking about GDP per capita. They're nowhere near the United States. But total GDP matters for a couple of reasons. And I'll start with the narrative. There was this point. It, it's been true for a while, but it was certainly true, I think, right at the beginning of COVID, where there were these narratives that, you know, China is more efficient, more effective than the United States. It's almost like a big Singapore. They get shit done. We don't get shit done. So I think in a case where China's struggling, 
that whole narrative about the superiority of the, it's not just the superiority of the Chinese economic system, it's yeah. their political system. That was a narrative. And I would say that this takes the air out of that. So that's a good thing, in my opinion, because yeah, I, we don't want countries emulating them. They want We want them, I wouldn't say emulating us, but I would say emulating the world's best democracies, mm-hmm. which I wouldn't say we're there right now, but certainly more us than them. But there are a couple of things here. Second is like related to that, China was waiting for this moment because it would be a propaganda win for them. They would yeah. be able to say, all right, we have surpassed the United States. Um, they can then leverage that in global negotiations, like both mm-hmm. from a perceptions perspective, but also just throwing the weight of their economy around. Like if you're like, for instance, when they have the Belt and Rust Initiative and they're building roads and bridges, et cetera, and infrastructure in Africa, you know, African countries doesn't care what the per capita GDP mm-hmm. of China is. They want to know how much money is yep. So where there's less money, that's an issue. There's also interdependence, which just cuts the other way, right? So why does this matter to the U.S.? Well, we trade We're with entirely China. captured right. by them in so many ways. You were born in what year? 2000. So 2001, China joined the WTO. So basically your whole life, they've been part of the WTO. That led to a 600% increase mm-hmm. uh, of U.S. exports to China, which is dwarfs what happened uh, in that period of time of the U.S. with any other country. We find at the point now where we have a huge trade deficit with that country, where we have we export $124 billion in goods to China in 2020 and are importing $434 billion. So we're bringing in a lot more than we're sending out. But either way, we have huge ties to that country. So where mm-hmm. they struggle, we struggle. Yeah. And so this is significant. Um, there's, they're also the second largest holder of US treasuries, which means that if they have less money to throw around, they buy less treasuries, it weakens the US dollar. We've talked about what that means mm-hmm. to have a stronger, weak US dollar. You know, Having uh, a weaker dollar and a weaker demand for the dollar means that the prices for imports will increase for us. So things will get more expensive. We're trying to buy them from other countries, but paradoxically then, like our companies that export things will do better because then exports will be cheaper and more in demand. So like it's it's weird, but in in, in the end, I would say that cuts against us. We don't want a weaker China for inter- interdependence reasons. Like it will affect our economy, but then you get to some of the scary scenarios. There are certain yeah. experts like Hal Brands and John Hop- um, uh, from John Hopkins and Michael Beckley from Tufts who think that that, that a weakened China could then lash out uh, at Taiwan, it could lead to um, crackdowns of dissent uh, locally, et cetera. Yeah. So I don't know. Like, yeah. I, I generally don't root, I would say I don't root for that country, but I, I don't want any unnecessary suffering. And I certainly wouldn't want the US economy to be hurt. Yeah, definitely. I mean, we've also seen them be emboldened to crack down on Hong Kong recently, too. And so, I, I mean, I think there's still reason to be concerned, even considering that there might be signs of weakness showing, because we've just seen recently that there's kind of the potential for new blocks arising in the international stage and you know you have russia and iran now and china and like you know if they they do have growing economic power and they can be somewhere for for nefarious actors in the world to kind of glom onto as the alternative economic power so um i think even though this is some silver lining and it might weaken their stance and maybe their their leverage on the global scale, I think there's still a force to be reckoned with and something to watch. Yeah, there are a couple of interesting data points here just to sort of set the scene for what's to come for our audience. There's this you know great writer, Noah Yuval Harari, who talks about how this is a digital Cold War. He talks about the US versus China. He's been relatively bullish on China where he thinks that authoritarianism benefits 
from centralization of data and that the the way that data flows now and can be centralized and deployed against population means that it tightens the grip of authoritarian countries where some of this unrest that we talked about is way less potent than it would have been during the Cold War where it was just harder to keep tabs on your population to stay efficient. Um, and then you have people like Scott Galloway who've written about this and, and talk about how there's just hidden forces here that go beyond just straight war. So not just like a Taiwan war, but there are things like IP uh, theft, which he estimates that the IP theft against U.S. companies uh, as a percentage of GDP is higher than the percentage of GDP spent on most wars that we've had, except I think yeah. he basically says, except for the Korean War. Yeah. Definitely. So you have all this going on, and then you get the fact that China is not just going to be defensive on, on Taiwan. They lashed out against Canada after they arrested a CFO of, uh, of a Chinese company, and they, they sent us in a Canadian citizen to death. Um, they lashed out at Norway because they have the Nobel Peace Prize, Australia for investigating the origins of COVID, Sweden for declining to use hey, Huawei for its 5G networks. So you got, this is a this is a country that's very sensitive. I think they're going to get even more prickly and sensitive. And that means that they might be on their back heels. And that is that is both dangerous for the world, but you know, in the end, it could be good to see them weakened so that, you know, hopefully most people don't look at it and say, let's emulate that. Yeah. I mean, hopefully it's the latter. Well, I think that's all we got, Ricky. Uh, for our listeners, make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcast, hit that like button, share this with your friends, and we'll be back Thursday with a whole bunch of new stories. The Lost Debate is the flagship show of the Lost Debate Network. Our executive producer is Michael Hendricks. Research support by Joe Garvey and Ariane Misra. Studio support by Moyo Adeolu. Editing and sound design by Monica Espitia and Joe Engelbrecht. Video editing by Ava Maldonado.